Hi, I'm Mark Cuban. I'm Jackie Keast. We're self-appointed experts in content and in making each other laugh. Welcome to our podcast on the tools. Where we talk about what we've been watching, reading, listening to and scrolling through. This week we're going to talk about TV series Hail Satan, podcast The Forgotten Women of Juarez, a long read slash book, Hiroshima, and TV show Travel Man. Jackie Keith, nice to see you. You too. How are you? I'm all right. Um, so, I over the holidays, so obviously, um, I'd parked a lot of content and came across this thing. And you know, my background's been—I um, was raised in a Pentecostal household, um, which haunts me to this day. <laughs> um, but anyway, it was a. I think it was on Netflix. Uh, it was a doco called Hail Satan. So you're coming out <laughs> as a Satanist. <laughs> well, no, but anyway, um, I kind of discovered this, uh, well, actually through Freddie, my bartender friend, who <laughs> spoke about this show and then I kind of, you know, it was in the back of my mind and then I stumbled. He trapped you it. into the cult of Satan. He has. <laughs> anyway, so Hail Satan traces the rise um, of the satanic temple um curiously they came up with the name satanic temple because all the other names were taken how many satan like what else is there i think in america there's a lot but anyway so the satanic temple uh it's only six years old uh and already it's probably one of the most controversial religious movements in american history (laughs) surprise Um, well no there's a lot of them but this is kind of unusual. And the, the temple and its leader, who I really like, he's quite a smart guy, very dry, has a sense of humour, Lucien Greaves. Not Lucifer. Uh, no, no, Lucien, L-U-C-I-E-N, Greaves, G-R-E-A-V-E-S, um, are calling for a satanic revolution to save the nation's soul. Um, and it was, to be honest, really funny. And I kind of really liked them. They weren't, you know, I guess my initial thoughts were, you know, (laughs) know, worshipping the Dark Lord. Um, And I think they actually don't believe in any other kind of being. It's a weird thing. But um, it's almost like, you know, so over the past century of popular culture, you know, Satan has kind of quieted the souls of, you know, musicians, incited youth rebellions, you know, possessed small children and goats. Um, goats. <laughs> impregnated <laughs> unsuspecting women, right, and, uh, and transmitted <laughs> evil through backward lyrics on heavy metal albums. Um, but it's kind of weird. There was a story uh, about Satanism in uh, one of the Rolling Stones issues not that long ago. Um, and it kind of said, and this is just paraphrasing, the nature of his game has been puzzling us, right? Um, <laughs> who is Satan really? <laughs> who he is. But what's happened, It's a, and it's a strange time because the forces that have aligned against Satan have become 
kind of objectable, uh, objectable uh, that he no longer looks like the bad guy, right? So in terms of the churches, they include <laughs> groups like West Westboro Baptist Church, right? Notorious for its hate speech against LGBTQ people, Jews, Muslims, and you know other groups, all of which it condemns as satanic frauds. Uh, there's the Trump administration in league with the US religious right, which has been aggressively pushing anti-abortion and anti-LGBTQ legislation, um, and not to mention engaging in sort of overt, you know, Islamophobia. Um, and those forces would also include the 20,000 people who recently signed an online petition condemning the Amazon TV adaptation of the cult novel Good Omens uh, about a demon and an angel as another step to make Satanism appear normal. Um, I've read so, the book. It's good. <laughs> it's good, is it, right? Yeah. So, so you know, and it's kind of weird. So, And so this, this church or whatever it, you want to call it, um, kind of goes in behind the scenes and looks at this kind of the effort of the satanic temple as it kind of evangelizes for, um, you know, what for new members but also what they stand for. And it was very funny at the start, they kind of, they turned, so there's a, I think a university or a town or someplace and they put up a statue of the Ten Commandments <laughs> so they wanted to take on um, the government and fight and save the Constitution because nowhere in the Constitution does actually say that America is a religious country, it's a Christian country. It basically says that, you know, it's open to all sorts of religions and creeds and, and It's races. in America they say in God we trust all the time. Well, yeah, but that's on the coin. But that's, yeah. not, that's not part of the Constitution. Okay. You know? The Constitution is kind of open. Um and so they built this statue of the Ten Commandments. And so they turn up and basically say, here's a picture of the statue we want to build and put next to this, I don't know, devil. It was like this devil, two <laughs> children, right? You can imagine this really, really straight town freaked out. And it was very funny. Um and the fight, and look, they're very clever, and they kind of they seem more like they're shit stirrers than, uh, you know, uh, damnation. I don't know; it's kind of a weird setup. But what was really interesting was that when he was talking, um, the Baphomet—that was it. That was the they wanted to erect <laughs> this eight-foot-high statue, uh, the goat-headed, <laughs> cloven-hoofed deity. Um, and of course, you can imagine just people freaked out. But what was interesting is that the temple itself, there are seven fundamental tenets. So this uh, is their sort of commandments. The Ten Commandments, yeah. So, you know, what are the Ten Commandments? You know, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not cover, you know, the neighbor's wife. wife. <laughs> you know, thou should not, you know, take the Lord's name in vain. Is that one or do I make yeah, that no, up? Yeah, no, that's one. You I'm know, not really, uh, I don't know what they all are. But yeah. I don't know, there's a whole bunch of them, right? Anyway. So these seven fundamental tenets is one, so one should strive to act with compassion and empathy toward all creatures in accordance with reason. Seems fair. (laughs) Yeah. Two, the struggle for justice is an ongoing and necessary pursuit that should prevail over laws and institutions. What does that mean? I don't know. But. Maybe, right? Uh, and then three, you know, one's body is inviolable. So subjects 
subject to one's own will alone. Damn right. <laughs> yeah, right. Four, the freedoms of others should be respected, including the freedom to offend. To willfully and unjustly encroach upon the freedoms of another is to forego one's own. Five, belief should conform to one's best scientific understanding of the world. One should take care never to distort scientific facts to fit one's belief. Six, people are fallible. If one makes a mistake, one should do one's best to rectify it and resolve any harm that might have been caused. Fair enough. And seven, every tenant is a guiding principle designed to inspire nobility in action and thought. The spirit of compassion, wisdom and justice should always prevail over the written or spoken word. So that's kind of like what they stand for, and you know, it's reasonable, I guess. Um, but they, it's kind of interesting. They have, um, he's kind of created this, they, they adopted a beach, and you know what the what? states are like. They've adopted a beach where they go once a month or once every two weeks and you know, and some of them look kind of Satanist and cultish. I'm imagining they all look like goths. <laughs> goths, well, <laughs> and they go and they basically run around these little prongs and pick up garbage and trash and, you know, bag it all up and clean this ah. beach. And there's a sign <laughs> right on the on some post that says, uh, you know, this, this this beach is sponsored by the uh, Satanic Temple. <laughs> it's it's very bizarre. It's a very bizarre show, um, but also at look, and I don't know, I don't know the ins and outs of religion or anything like that. But you know, on the surface, it looked like they were, you know, kind of. Um, Socially involved, you know, it's like the satanic after school childcare center. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and it's kind of weird. So, you know, basically, when they brought, and that was the whole thing. So, I think it was Phoenix, Arizona, began meeting with a Christian prayer, for example. So, they start their meetings with, you know, with a Christian prayer. Uh, so, the satanic temple demanded that satanic prayer should also be said. Uh, the council chose to drop the prayers altogether. Uh, when the Child Evangelism Fellowship set up uh, the pro-Christian Good News Club in the US public schools, the Satanic Temple introduced its own after-school Satan's Club. So basically they're saying, well, if you're permitted to do that, then we should be allowed to do this. And that was where they did the Ten Commandments and then tried to put the eight-foot-high eight statue of the Baphomet um, with some kids looking on lovingly. Um and so, you know, Lucien Gris said he became, you know, it became very apparent that there was a real need for what they were doing and it was about balance um, and that Christianity was kind of almost going back on a lot of things like the right for, you know, to an abortion, you know, um, you know LGBTQ rights, um, you know, women's rights. I mean, a whole bunch of stuff. And so it's kind of... It made sense and it was very interesting and some of the characters were very funny. Um, one of the guys was talking about, he goes, well, we don't, you know, we don't kill things and there's no blood. And he said, you know, you go to the Catholic Church and, you know, you're eating the body of Christ and drinking blood, yuck. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, um, it was informative and amusing. Uh <clears throat> and this is the other thing as well, which was kind of interesting, that Greaves said he doesn't believe in, in God. 
Satan, evil, or anything supernatural. It sounds, seems like it's more like just a community of people. Yeah, who gave themselves a name. He says, nor does he sacrifice babies or serve a secret coven. You know, he said. Sacrifice uh, babies. <laughs> the satanic temple is non-theistic and its principles are broadly liberal humanism. He said, first of it, seven tenets, for example, one should strive to have compassion. Um you know, he said, so why call it Satanism? And so his response was the metaphor of Satan is just as important to a lot of us as it would be to anybody else who takes it literally because we grew up, you know, in a Judeo-Christian culture. And so he was basically saying that, you know, they, you know, in the yin-yang, they are the yang and they're trying to bring in um, kind of affirmative values and, you um, you know, they're kind of opposing some of that authoritarian structures that kind of seem to be creeping in into America. Um, but look, really interesting, um, very, very <laughs> funny, uh, and I like the characters a lot and uh, they kind of look like they were fun. Where can you uh, watch this? Uh, Netflix. Okay. <laughs> it was very good and uh, it was one of the things that, you know, I wasn't sure what to expect. And, uh, you know, I'm not really into kind of cultish or uh, evil kind of things. But, um, no, it was good. It was very funny. And it also had a lot of, you know, it was interesting what they were saying. It made sense and, you know, in terms of and maybe they're using Satan um, to get attraction, you know, to get traction and, and be noticed. Um, yeah, look, worth worth a watch and uh yeah, it, i kind of like them i'd probably hang out with them <laughs> so you're a satanist now <laughs> i am not no it kind of reminds me i read this book a few years ago by elaine de Pathon that's called religion for atheists and it, it his kind of argument is like there are elements element only elements of religions that can be useful like in secular society and so he talks about like traditionally church or like or some aspects of like coming together at church is it kind of creates a community and keeps people connected to each other. <laughs> and like, I guess in the modern world, we don't have that sort of thing where we come together. We know the people that live around, especially in cities. And like, there's one other interesting thing where he talks kind of, and this kind of reminds me that like they sort of created their own community and it's not really about the fact that they believe in Satan at all. It's more about coming together and having like shared values but, I think half it's also shock value. To oh, be oh, yeah, of course. Um, and, yeah, like he also talks about like in the Western secular world now we have this idea of like constantly trying to strive for happiness and improvement and like if you can get to a certain level then you'll be permanently happy. But like religion kind of says that you're like it, it kind of assumes that like being alive is suffering or like you suffer in the name of God and you're always going to be vulnerable to heartbreak and despair and that's where the church kind of steps in for people and like maybe we should try to find a way to find out that sort of place for that in our world. But I don't know. It's an interesting book. But, yeah, it kind of reminded me of that when you were talking about it. Yeah, yeah. No, look, it's, it's interesting and I think, you know, um, Main Street media sometimes doesn't really cover these offshoots and I think with – Well, it's easy just to – hear about Satan and just think, okay, that's I know already know what, I know <laughs> what that is. Yeah. And that. Yeah. But look, it was good and, you know, it was kind of like um 
You know, the statue's not attractive. I, like <laughs> no? Good no, it's not, no, it's not attractive. But, look, great. And um, and where are you getting your upside-down cross tattoo? No, no, they don't have an upside-down cross. No? They have the pentagram, which is the five. Oh, the star. The star, that's correct. I, <laughs> I think, know that's I the upside down. I think the upside-down cross is probably more a... Uh, uh, you know, a Hollywood creation. <laughs> uh, and what have you been listening to or watching? I've been reading something. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been, I'm going to talk about another article from the New Yorker because apparently <laughs> that's what I do on this podcast. But um, I only found out after reading this story that it's potentially the most famous New Yorker article of all time. And so it's John Hersey's Hiroshima, which was published in 1946, and it's since been published as a book. And it's since it was published, it's never been out of print. Um, so, as you can probably guess from the name and the date of publication, Hersey's story follows six people who survived the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima in Japan at the end of World War Two. And in his article, you sort of follow the events from these people's viewpoints, so it's two women, two doctors, two clergymen, and then over six um, six, sections or chapters kind of, it kind of alternates between each of them, like what they were doing beforehand on the morning of their experiences at the moment the bomb went off and then like Mm. the days and months that follow. And like I just happened upon this article randomly like one morning during my summer holidays and I was in no way prepared to like sit down and read like a 31,000 word article. Like I think I was just lying in bed, just scrolling through my phone before I got up. But like once I started reading, I couldn't put it down. Like I was completely transfixed. I read. In- Hang on. That, that article was 31,000 words. Yeah. Wow. It's really long. I guess it's what why- a monster. Yeah, like, but once I started reading it, I was like transfixed. I read it in one sitting. Like I couldn't stop. I like the portrait he paints with these people. And, like, the horrors they went through, is, it's just incredible. And, like, it speaks to, obviously, the worst but also the best of humanity because these people are trying to save each other. But, like, Hersey, the journalist who wrote this, he was one of the first correspondents to go to Hiroshima after the war ended. And it's just a, it was an incredible piece of journalism because when it was published, most Americans and probably people, most people outside of Japan, even within Japan, outside of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they still didn't really realise the impact of nuclear weapons, like in part because like there were huge post-war suppression campaigns. Like even Hersey, the New Yorker, submitted this article to the War Department within America because things were being censored and somehow they let this be published. But it really changed how people saw this event. Like people just thought this was a more powerful bomb and it kind of provoked the first public debate over actually the ethics of using a weapon like this and it it, what it really did is it gave it a human face because before that, lots of the things that had been quoted about uh, Hiroshima had been around like the, the destruction of buildings and not about what actually happened to people. And so when the New Yorker published this story, it took up the whole issue, like there was nothing else in the magazine. Every copy sold out and it was read over the radio all over the world and then like the editors were flooded for requests of extras. Wow. including from Albert Einstein who wanted to distribute it, like a 1,000 copies with, within a group of scientists. and like Why? To, to show the devastation? Yeah. To, so he said right. like this is given 
a, like a true picture of the appalling effect on human beings and this picture has implications for the future of mankind which must deeply concern all responsible men and women. And, like, I also read this article without really knowing its significance within the history of journalism. So it's also one of the very first examples of new journalism which is like literary or narrative journalism. So it's journalism, it reads like fiction and that became, I guess, really popular in the 60s, like people like Truman Capote and Tom Wolfe. So, and like Hiroshima has been called the first non-fiction novel and the way it's written, it feels so modern. Like I kept thinking the whole time, like, was this really written in 1946? Oh, really? Yeah, and it's so detailed and it's so good at making you feel that like you're there. Like I had to think, is this? fiction but it's so specific you couldn't make it up and it's just one of those cases where the truth is just more terrible than a fiction could ever be because it's like women who are walking around the streets naked but with the patterns of their kimonos burned to their skin because their clothes have burnt off like soldiers with (laughs) melting eyeballs and like yeah just street scapes that because everything was on fire it's just like it seems like it was hell And, like, all I could think of as a journalist as well, like, reading it, how much work he must have done because it's so detailed, like, the questions he must have been asked, like, must have asked, like, to be able to write a piece that is so immersive. It would have been... Did you you read that online? Yeah, you can read it online on the New York website for free. If you just type Hiroshima, the New York, into Google, you can read it. I'm going to read that. That's fascinating. Yeah, but also, like, what is so, like, I think is what makes it so powerful is it's really... It's really restrained. It's not sensationalized, the writing. Like it's just it just shows and not like it, it shows you. It doesn't tell you how to feel. And I think that's to me like the sign of, of good writing. Yeah, absolutely. But like also you have to you have to you have to walk the line, don't you? Yeah, because he's, he's a, you can't take a position. You could easily take a one in a story <clears throat> like that. And actually it's surprising when it was written in nineteen forty six and the war was so close that that he was able to be as objective as he was like and I don't know but like when I was reading this all I could think about was okay this was written in 1946 what because you become attached to these six people and you want to know what happened to them and all I can think about like yeah what happened to them in the years since because we know so much now about radiation poisoning and the ongoing impact that's why nuclear weapons are so awful and so, yeah, a very quick Google search because I just like I need to know what happened. I found out that Hersey wrote a follow-up story in 1985 called Hiroshima, The Aftermath, which is almost just as long, but I read it immediately afterwards as well. So I spent like I think I got up at like 2 o'clock this day because I was reading everything, like all these articles. But, yeah, of course, many of them had since died, obviously, due to complications from the radiation they were exposed to but maybe the most fascinating trajectory was like there's a Christian reverend Kiyoshi Tanimoto who he after the war he travels a lot to the U.S. to sort of raise money and awareness for survivors of the blast and also his church but in particular he makes one trip to raise money for plastic surgery for these they call them the Hiroshima maidens and their faces have sort of been disfigured by keloid scars. So lots of people uh, that were subject to the blast got keloid scars all over their body, massive ones. What, uh, what is that? So some people get them after you get surgery, you know, those big scars that kind of like a raised. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. <clears throat> so 
he goes in America, he goes to do what he thinks is a news interview about this. And actually he's unwittingly brought on to the show, This Is Your Life. So they bring on suddenly all these guests that have known him through because he studied at university in America. And mm. so he bring, they bring out all these university professors. They bring out his family from Japan and they also, one of the guests, and this is just unbelievable, is the co-pilot of the Enola Gay, which is the plane that dropped the bomb. And oh my God. I found this on YouTube afterwards. You can find the episode, the whole episode. And I, How did he react? It's so uncomfortable, and I, as you can imagine. And the pilot, who apparently was drunk during this appearance because he got to the studio, thought he was going to get paid, found out he wasn't, and then went and got pissed and then came back to do the segment. But he also, the pilot also looks so drunk. And, like, remember that this guy had no idea that what he was there I wonder, for. You know, I, I wonder, what, you know, what those people on that plane, knowing the carnage they unleash, you well, know, do they? He says they that in the, he bird? says that in the show. He's like he says that he wrote in his diary that day. What have we done? So yeah, but it, th- th- in terms of television, it just feels like the most exploitative thing I've ever seen. Because you know they were innocents, right? I mean they weren't they weren't soldiers. They no, they were, just, were c- civilians. They were civilians, yeah. Yeah, like and the the rationale for dropping on Hiroshima was that it was like a military city, but it, it was civilians who died like a hundred thousand people or more so yeah mm. but yeah I've, I've been to Hiroshima first when I was 15 I went to Japan on like a short exchange thing and I went again as an adult but it's just one of those places you go to like if you've been to Auschwitz similar but like you'll never you can't really shake it so yeah but mm. so I found that yeah well, I'm, I'm definitely going to go I, I look I think that stuff is really important to read and kind of remember and, mm. you know, I think people forget it's been a long time between wars, big wars, and that, you know, the atrocities are horrible and, you know. Yeah, um, when I went back to Hiroshima as an adult, like I went when I was 25, I went backpacking around Japan as by myself and in the youth hostel I stayed in in Hiroshima there was like a guest book and I just was like chilling in the front room reading it and there was like a a note from a Japanese woman that had written in there saying, like, think about us in Fukushima because this what happened there is happening to people that lived in, happened here, what happened, is happening to people. After the tsunami? Yeah, like with radiation <laughs> oh, really? poisoning and stuff like that. Oh, so terrible. Hmm. So I've been um, reading, well, it's a podcast. I've actually, look, it's a story in a podcast, but I listened to the podcast and then became kind of quite um, intrigued, but um, the podcast is called Forgotten, the Women of Juarez. Um, And it's weird. You you kind of, you know, we live in a bubble and it's kind of safe and secure, but um, so I was reading this thing. The backstory is that, you know, on February 9th, you know, a 25-year-old former beauty queen uh, was allegedly stabbed to death and dismembered by a boyfriend in Mexico um, Mexico City. And then a week later, a seven-year-old girl named Fatima disappeared uh, where she was waiting uh, for a bus and a body was found wrapped in a plastic bag. And there are only they're just two cases of where last year a 1,000 Mexican women were killed 
uh, in 2020. And so it's kind of led to a mass protest outside um, uh, Palacio National in Mexico City where demonstrators called for action against femicide. Uh, that's terrified the women there for, for years. Uh, the interesting thing was that there's, you know, femicide, the uh, cases have increased by 137% in the last five years. And the reality is that no one really knows how to stop it and what to do and, and so forth. So it's kind of central. It's it's happening. It's growing. No one really knows why. And But this is this podcast is kind of difficult to listen to, but mm. it's really, really great. And um, it's basically uh, kind of a deep dive into um, a bunch of people who've gone missing. So in this one town, um, there's like basically – an onslaught of, of femicides um, that are occurring. And so all these miss, these women started missing um, and disappearing and they're not really sure why or where they've gone. And then by accident they find these mass graves. Uh, and they're border town. Many worked at American factories were later found murdered with bizarre symbols carved into their skin and oh their God. hands. And their hands were bound with shoelaces. And kind of despite the involvement of the FBI and the CIA and the US ambassador to Mexico, the crimes kind of remained unsolved. Um, anyway, so this this podcast, uh, which is absolutely fascinating, kind of goes in and this woman, uh, Monica Ortiz Ubride, um, and another guy, uh, Chio Dad Uaris uh, um, basically went in and wanted to know what was happening in Juarez. And so you had people who were applying for, young women applying for jobs, and they'd go in you know, a busy city, lots of people um, in broad daylight, and they vanish. And so this woman uh, goes in, and you know, it's, it seems like it's a city that's there, where there's a lot of corruption, a lot of distrust. Um, and so this journalist goes in and starts to ask questions and, and, you know, basically puts her life and the life of her family on the line. Mm. And, you know, they talk to these mothers who've lost their daughters and there's no – and they're still waiting for them. So what happened was they started putting the photos or the symbol on um, all the street poles of these women who went missing, to remind everybody that, you know, all these these women had gone. It is such a heart-moving podcast and, you know, it's kind of like, and it's interesting because it's not the, the increase in violence against women isn't just on the increase there. I mean, Australia had a really bad, you know, jump. Remember last year it was like how many people, how many women had died at the mm. hands of, men so you know i don't know what it is what's causing it um but look it's a pretty heavy podcast but it's uplifting at the same time because these women that you know the journalists and and the people who spoke and you know the mothers who did all this stuff right um they're my heroes. They're amazing, and you know, and that was that was the uplifting moment. That in in amongst all this stuff, you just see the power of women. And to be honest, it's like you know, and they they launched this thing one day without women, 
in Mexico. And I have to be honest, like there were no women. So in what Mexico did they do that, for that day? I think they like it was like a protest. You they just stay inside. You stayed inside. You mm. didn't see anyone. And so lots of stuff's going on. Um, but you know, it's you know, is it drugs? Is it you know, like how can you have all these people disappear and not know? You know and how can it not be an outrage? Well, it's an outrage, but you know, it also seems like you know the police are paid off and the police yeah. are working with the you know the cartel and. You know, and the cartel have a lot of money. And so it's kind of very broken. I think, you know, society that treats its women like that is really broken. And, you know, what is it teaching its children? So it's, you know, it wasn't a fuzzy, happy podcast, but, you know, pretty amazing. Um, and, you know, and she grew up in El Paso, which is kind of like one of the border towns there. This is the journalist, Monica. And, you know, in her memory, she kind of describes that place as warm, brown and friendly, um, you know, and she goes, and that goes for the landscape as much as the people. Uh, and she said, you know, when she was a kid, her family drove, you know, to Juarez on Sunday, see their favourite restaurant, you know, pick up Mexican spices. Um, so she said that she's really shocked at, you know, just all these disappearances and doesn't understand why. But really great really great journalism, um, you know, thought-provoking and, you know, sad. And But, mm. you know, it's a story that I think you kind of have to listen to. Um, so, yeah, really, really great podcast. But, you, you know, you, I, it's not you kind of have to pick your moment when you're ready to listen to it. Yeah. But it is like one of those things. It's like women my age are more likely if, to die from their partner or someone that we we know than like being assaulted in the street or anything like that and like yeah it, that makes you reflect on like what ha- is happening here as well like you mentioned yeah look i mean you know that that says something about society and you mm-hmm. know and i would do wonder sometimes whether you know is that porn is that the stuff that you see on the internet i mean you know, what is that stuff teaching kids and men about how you treat women? I mean, anyway, I think there has to be a shake-up. And, uh, no, it's a complicated. All you need are headphones. Control. I've been watching something. Um... So a bit lighthearted, like, but like a lot of people, I haven't had a proper holiday since 2019. Um, like I've had time off work, but I spent that not really doing much. And like the only plane ride I've taken in more than two years was to go to Adelaide for work where I spent less than eight hours. But even that was like thrilling. I'm so excited to be on the plane and not in Sydney and somewhere else and Poor Adelaide. I don't think thrilling is an adjective that is often applied to it. <laughs> but yeah, actually, I quite like Adelaide, but whatever. I did plan one holiday and I thought I'd be clever because there's been state border closures all over Australia. I put it in New South Wales where I live. And literally the day I was meant to leave, we went into the second Sydney lockdown. So I don't know when I'm going to plan my next holiday, but I whatever. saw the strangest thing I've ever seen in Adelaide. What? 
we left. Uh, it was a while ago, but we left like the convention center or whatever it is, and um, you know, there's like a McDonald's drive-through, not very far. <laughs> and there's a guy. I'm not lying. Right, I was with a friend of mine, Dave Chaplin, a colleague, and uh, and there was a car with a dildo <laughs> stuck on the roof. You know, those ones the suction cups. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was. I don't know. It's just one like double take. Look at you. Like, what the hell? What's that about? Did they do it? Did somebody else do but it? But there's like a massive red light district in Adelaide. Like when I went to Adelaide, Adelaide Film Festival to go down the street there, it's just like porn shops, like <laughs> sex shops everywhere, shisha everywhere, and then the cinema. It's like it's a really long strip. It's like I feel like I'm in King's Cross. What is this? Oh, I thought really? Adelaide was the city of churches. This is City But anyway, like the reason I'm talking about travel is like one of my comfort shows during lockdown was a UK travel series, Travel Man, and every episode is hosted by the comedian Richard Ayoade. And he travels to a city mostly within Europe because it's it's kind of around like a mini break or like 48 hours within a city. But they do occasionally go further. And he's always partnered with another comedian or a celebrity. But <laughs> like what makes Travel Man brilliant and not just like any other travel show is because Ayoade, his whole shtick is that he hates travelling. <laughs> he's like he's really uptight and he's droll and he's cynical and he's – super deadpan and and dry and part of the joy of watching the show is just seeing whether because he's so quick and cutting seeing whether his guests can keep up with him at all and you know quite often they can't even if they're comedians themselves and he sometimes has American guests and they're probably a little bit too earnest like it feels like a lot of his like very British sense of humor is going over their heads but kind of like sometimes that's like half the fun (laughs) and like if it isn't very apparent, I, like, have an enormous crush on him. I think he's hilarious. But there's nine seasons of this show. Like, this is something I watch every night, like, sometimes when I, like, just after dinner, make me feel good. And so there's lots of to, to devour. Like, one of my favourite episodes is Vienna with Chris O'Dowd, so Ayoade's co-star in the IT crowd. So Ayoade was Moss. But <laughs> it's just worth it for a scene with a snow globe. I'm not going to give anything away, but I was actually in tears of laughter. It's just like so awkward and uncomfortable. It's, it's great. And then I found the clip on YouTube immediately afterwards and just like spent the evening giggling to myself watching it repeatedly. Um, other good episodes is Copenhagen with Noel Fielding. He goes to Helsinki with Paul Rudd and they go to a sauna within a Burger King and they're like in a sauna eating like whoppers and like sweating and eating fries. So like the Finns love their saunas. Oh, there are saunas everywhere. That. Would you? Do you want to eat in a sauna? No, I'd, I'd probably. Well, yeah, I'd probably not want to eat in a sauna, but I love a sauna. Do you? Yeah. I love a sauna too. That I went through this phase of going in the sauna when I had a hangover. I don't recommend going in a sauna when you're nearly really dehydrated because <laughs> I thought this will sweat it out, which it does, but you also nearly faint. <laughs> oh yeah, let me hit you with some birds. <laughs> but yeah, and like the Dubai episode is really good because you see Richard like try and fail 
to haggle with the shopkeeper only to sort of like keep giving him more and more money because he looks sad, which is just hilarious. But apparently Awadi, he kind of recently left the show and there's new seasons. I haven't seen them yet. They've only aired in the UK with Joe Lycett. So I think he went with to with Bill Bailey to Iceland. I can't mm. imagine the show without Richard, but I'll keep an open mind. So it's a Channel 4 show. But is it it's on like a, do they take you to great destinations and is it a joy? Or? Yeah, definitely. Like he you go around to like all the landmarks of whatever city you're in while you're there. So like they go they go to New York, they go different cities in Europe like Porto and Budapest and Berlin and Paris. They go all different places. Um Miami. Um yeah. So it, it, it's it is like Part of the joy is just like, oh my god, I, I want to go traveling again, and it does remind you of the <laughs> the bad parts of traveling, which like sometimes is easy to gloss over. But I think there's good and bad. Like travel is at once some one of the best and also yeah, worst experiences. Oh, yeah, but you know, I mean, I love that that sense of adventure. You know, exactly, um, and that somehow like wa- waiting fourteen just- hours in a train station because you're the trains are on strike in Italy somehow becomes enjoyable, like that kind of stuff because you're just excited I, to be at a different place. Yeah, it is. I Look, I, I love that. And, you know, you don't know what's going to happen next and it's the adventure and things happen. Where yeah. do you want to travel to now we can leave Australia again? Can we? We can't leave yet, can we? Yeah, we can. It's, hard. it's, it's an, a process. It's not easy, but we can leave. And it's very expensive to travel right now. If you wanted to, uh, you could. You know what? The only thing I want is a beach. Yeah. I want sand, beach, water, and not to be contacted. <laughs> somewhere remote. Yeah, somewhere remote. You know, we're lucky because, I mean, Australia, like you've got I was going to say, places. there's beaches here. Not not Australian beaches. I don't want that. <laughs> you know, well, in ha- you can't swim in half of them. I know. Start. If I you mean, want to wear your jellyfish, <laughs> kanji, crocodiles. You're not into the full body wetsuit. No, I'm not. So you know, two hours offshore, you've got New Caledonia, which is all like on a reef, beautiful. Um, you know, French Polynesia's nearby, um, and I just recently discovered. There's a place, what is that place off the Western Australian coast? Um, oh, yes, and, that you showed this to me. What's it called? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Kep, no, Kep or something? Oh, no. No, no, the um, Cocos Keeling Island. Yeah, that's it. Like who would have thought? And so it's this amazing atoll that has a Western Australian postcode governed by Australia, but it's kind of quite deep in the Indian Ocean and almost part of Indonesia, but it's stunning. And But I don't think there's any restaurants. <laughs> See, that's what I want when I go travelling. I'm like, I want to go eat out. And it, I don't want to be in a hotel where I just have to eat the hotel food. If I'm in a resort, I feel like I'm going insane. Yeah, but I think you can actually have a barbecue on the beach. You can burn a fire. That would be awesome. Like I went to Burma once and I loved the fact that I could drive my motorbike on the beach. Yeah. There was nobody on the beach. It was just it was just like I probably drove about twenty kilometers on a like sand and it was fantastic. You know. I felt like I was James Bond. <laughs> 
Yes, but I'm desperate to get away and hopefully sooner rather than later. I know, I know. But, yes. Hugh, Hugh did say, Hugh, Hugh Drury did say that Our producer. Know, we, we could probably take this show on the road. Maybe we should on the tools on tour. <laughs> this can be coming from a, a hammock in the next episode. In a camper van. He would probably give us that old Volkswagen camper van. Yeah, con- let's be. get the contact those van life guys you spoke about in the first episode and then. Yeah, but did you? they had a Volkswagen. No, I want the latest version. I would like one with you know? air conditioning, please. Yeah, and like, you know, somewhere you can cook a gourmet meal. <laughs> I don't want to cook my own food on my yeah, holiday. I don't care. I mean, you know, I'll cook it. I don't care. <laughs> I just want to get away. So anyway. But, yeah, Travel Man, so it's a Channel 4 show in the UK, but it's on SBS On Demand here in Australia. And I looked it up. I'm not 100% sure it is in the US, but I think Amazon Prime and Peacock. And if you are listening to this and you know you are in Australia and you know how to legally find the episode, the Christmas specials of Travel Man, including John Hamm in Hong Kong, contact me because I am trying desperately to find it and it's not available anywhere. I don't want to see um, it. I love John Hamm. I will, I will say I just heard today, well, it's probably late news because I've been sort of off the grid, um, that Warwick Thornton's um, The Beach has been picked up internationally. Is that right? Yes, it has. It? And oh. I, it happened last year. Did it? Yeah. And now you've put me on the spot. I can't remember who it's sold to. It was something massive. That's great news for him, though. Yeah, amazing. So, anyway, always great to see you. You too. Um, we'll see you in the I'll van. Next, in the van. <laughs> I'll see you next week. <laughs> see you. Bye. Bye.